0: Well, as the children are being dismissed for Junior Church and Camp Sunday, in fact, um, I was looking out there, there was a horse out there, wasn't there? So I'm kind of jealous. So let's close in prayer and get out there. (laughs) That looks like a lot of fun out there. Let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 29 and verse 25. The title of our message this morning is God Values Us. And as Bruce was leading music this morning, leading worship, he said we're not going to have time for amazing grace, which kind of bummed me out because we need grace, Amen. And I was reaching into my tie rack this morning and I decided to put on a tie that I really never wear because it's kind of obnoxious in the sense that it draws attention to yourself sometimes rather than the Lord. But I just felt that the Lord wanted me to wear it. You know what it says on here? It says, Saved by Grace. So the Lord knew... The Lord knew this morning we needed to work grace somewhere into things, and so I believe He led me to this tie. <laughs> Blessed be the tie that binds. Amen? <laughs> <laughs> and if you guys knew who I was married to, you'd understand why I say half the, half the stuff I say. But let's, uh, let's take our Bibles, Genesis 29 and verse 25. The Lord values us. God, of course, is raising up in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. He's raising up a nation, the nation of Israel, through which He's going to bless the world. And that's why you have a lot of strategic teaching on three people. Isaac, excuse me, backing up, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we're in that Jacob section. In this particular chapter, we've seen Jacob's arrival into Haran, which is that circle at the top there up north, leaving uh, the land of Israel to journey in Haran where Abram's uh, family was residing and Jacob is going there to flee the wrath of his brother Esau And also in the process, he gains himself a wife. In fact, strike that, wives, plural. And so we've seen, beginning um, in Genesis 29, verse 15, we've seen Jacob's marriages. There was the marriage contract, verses 15 through 19. He serves Laban in exchange for the hand of Rachel whom he fell in love with. And then beginning in verses 20 through 30, we see his marriages. So Genesis 29, 20, Jacob has served Laban seven years for Rachel. Verse 20. So far, so good. The problem is he married Leah. Whoops. What happened there? Verses 21 through 25. He was deceived. He was cheated. He thought he was going to get Rachel, but instead he got Leah. And the rest of this section explains how, through perseverance, he finally married the woman of his dreams, Rachel. So he awakens there after the wedding night in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 25. And it says, so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And then we pick it up here, second part of verse 25 of chapter 29. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? It's interesting here how one of God's choice servants... Got deceived. When you track the concept of deception through the Bible, what you'll discover is that this is probably the key thing that the Lord has warned us about. Jesus, when he was asked about the end of the age, the events surrounding the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. There's sort of a a mindset out there amongst some schools of theology. And they say, well, if you're a born again Christian, you have the mind of Christ, and so you cannot be deceived. And I'm here to tell you that if you think that way as a Christian, you've already been deceived. A Christian is vulnerable to deception. This is why we need to put on Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation, which protects the mind. The 9-11 hijackers, as we have said before, did not have to get control of every square inch of the airplanes. They just had to control where the pilots sit, that area up front that guides the airplane. Because if you can control that and you can influence that, then you can control the direction of the entire vehicle, even though the cockpit is a small part of the plane. That's how the mind works. Satan has targeted the mind. He has specifically targeted the mind of the believer. This is why the mind constantly needs to be refreshed in God's word because we are so vulnerable to deception as Jacob here was clearly deceived. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse three, Paul the apostle writing to Christians says, so let no one in any way deceive you. Now, why would Paul write those words if a Christian could not be deceived? Jacob was clearly deceived here. And he confronts Laban over this deception. And Laban gives a response in verses 26 and 27. Laban basically says in verse 26, hey, this is the way we've always done things. Look at what he says in verse 26. But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place, Haran in other words, to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Now, Leah, as we saw earlier, was the firstborn. Rachel was the secondborn. If you look back at verse 16, it says Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Laban is basically saying, well, you didn't think you were going to get Rachel, did you? Here in Haran, in our place, we always give out the firstborn before the secondborn. That's why you got Leah instead of Rachel. Now, obviously, this is a lie because Laban, after seven years of service, never informed Jacob in advance. And Jacob has been living in this land of Haran for seven years. He never heard of this custom. But this is the excuse that Laban gives. He sees that Jacob is vulnerable for deception. And so he takes advantage of it. Laban then gives an offer. And you see that there in verse 27. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. So the offer is Jacob will marry Rachel, the one he truly loves, one week later, just one condition. Jacob is to work Laban for an additional seven years. And so what has happened here is now Jacob is forced to pay a second bridal price. Instead of seven years of service, it's now going to be 14 years of service. Just one little footnote here in verse 27 that you might find interesting is you'll see the word week. And you'll also see the words, you see the word week, the Hebrew is Shabuah. And you'll also see the word seven years at the end of verse 27. A week equals seven years. In Hebrew, what is a week? A week is a unit of seven. Seven. It's like how we use the word dozen. Give me a dozen. We're saying 12. 12 of what? 12 roses, 12 donuts, a dozen donuts. I like that second option pretty well. <laughs> and make sure they've got chocolate on it with some of those nut sprinkles and all that kind of stuff. Um, a dozen just means a unit of twelve. Twelve what? It depends on the context. In the Bible, when you see the word week or Shavua or seven, it's just talking about a unit of seven. Seven what? Well, it depends on the context, but here week can refer to seven years. Why even bring something like this up? Well, there is a famous prophecy in the Bible called the prophecy Of the 70 weeks of Daniel, and I'm very delighted that you just heard from Pastor Gabe a little earlier that on Wednesday nights, this is what he is teaching to his youth group. The 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, I went all the way through youth group program, high school program, college program, and I didn't even know what the 70 weeks of Daniel were. No one ever talked about it. But I'm very proud that we are in a church that will teach people, particularly youth, subjects like this. Uh, Pastor Jim was talking about the youth in this church are exposed to the Word of God. And what we mean by that is all of the Word of God, including prophecies like this, the 70 weeks of Daniel. You'll find them, by the way, we're not going to turn there, but you'll find them in Daniel 9:24 through 27. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been determined for your people and your holy city. It's a prophecy that we think is 490 years. 483 of those 490 years in that prophecy have expired to the exact date, by the way. It's a time period between the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah 2, until the very day that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday, which we commemorated a couple of weeks back. And in between those two dates, when you work the numbers and you factor in leap years, and then you also factor in the distinction between Gentile calendar years and Jewish calendar years, essentially what you'll discover is there are exactly 483 years or 69 sevens or 173,880 days, but who's counting? Between those two dates. And then the clock stopped running, leaving seven years yet to come. We are living literally in between the 484th year of the prophecy, excuse me, the end of the 483rd year and the beginning of the 484th year in a period of time called the church age. Seven years of that prophecy are yet to come. That's the seven-year tribulation period. And they will manifest on the earth subsequent to the rapture of the church. And once that occurs, God will now put his finger back on the start button and the final seven years of human history will click off until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. Daniel 9, chapter 9, verse 27, essentially tells you what that final seven-year period is going to be like. Essentially, it begins with a peace treaty between the Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. That's what starts the final seven years. Midway through that time period, the Antichrist will desecrate the Jewish temple. He will betray the Jewish people. Politicians never go back on their word, right? Well, that's what's going to happen to Israel. And yet this is necessary to make them aware that the Antichrist is not their Messiah. Their Messiah was Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and then there will be another three and a half years, and that will lead to not the rapture, which has already happened, but the second advent of Jesus. And the whole thing is bound up in this 490-year time period. And yet, we're sometimes criticized for our belief because it doesn't say 77-year time periods, it says 70 weeks, But I'm here to tell you that sometimes a unit of seven can refer to seven years. And you're seeing it right here in this passage. You should take the word week and underline it and take the word seven years and underline it because there are a week or a unit of seven equals seven years. And 70 times seven is 490 years. That's where we get the whole thing from. 483 years past, 7 years yet future. And the very best of the best have looked into this, whether it's my professor, the late Harold Honer, Dr. Harold Honer. Generations or so before him was a man named Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote a book called The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson was a very interesting man historically. He worked for Scotland Yard and was instrumental in resolving the infamous Jack the Ripper case. He was given by God a tremendous forensic mind to analyze things. He really is the first in his book, The Coming Prince, to unlock this 70 weeks prophecy. But the very best of the best have looked into this, and this was fulfilled to the exact day. Between the decree, Nehemiah 2, and Palm Sunday. And if that prophecy is on pause, which it is, and if that prophecy was fulfilled to the exact day, literally, in the past, and it was, why in the world would we think that God wouldn't fulfill the final seven years exactly as it says? And so this is why we believe in a coming seven-year tribulation period, because seven can refer to a unit of seven years, 70 times seven, 490 years total, according to my old math. And I was even educated in public schools, and I can figure that out. Seventy times seven, four hundred and ninety years. And so we're living in this pause. It's been on pause since Palm Sunday. Not Palm Sunday two weeks ago, but two thousand years ago. And God is doing a great work through the church. But one of these days, his work through the church will be complete, and he'll put his Finger or thumb back on the restart button and the final seven years of that prophecy will elapse just as literally as the first 483 years of the prophecy came into existence. And I bring this up because clearly seven years can refer to a unit of seven and you see it right here in verse 27. So what we have here is this agreement that Jacob will marry Rachel at the end of a week, but in exchange for that, he's got to serve Laban for an additional seven years. He's served seven years already. He's got to serve seven more, 14 years total. You'll notice here that Jacob agrees to this, verse 28. Jacob did so. And completed her week, in other words, the week of the wedding feast. And he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. Under the condition, of course, that he serves Laban for an additional seven years. Now, a lot of people will stumble over this, verse 28, because it seems to run afoul of the law of Moses, The law of Moses in Leviticus 18 verse 18 says, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister. And that's what Jacob has done here. So is God's word contradicting itself? Is Jacob violating God's word? And the answer is no, because what I just read from the book of Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 18 is part of the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given at Mount Sinai 600 years after this historical account elapsed. So the law of Moses doesn't exist yet. We are still, chronologically speaking, in the patriarchal time period, roughly 2000 BC, and the law of Moses is not going to be given until the time of the Exodus Roughly 1446 BC and so we can't hold Jacob to uh, an understanding of uh, the law of Moses because the law of Moses did not exist yet. I bring that to your attention because if you don't understand that people will throw at you. Aha, the Bible contradicts itself. And of course, there are people that do that. You know, their whole life is trying to find alleged contradictions in the Bible. They don't try to find contradictions in Shakespeare, but they try to find them in the Bible because the Bible makes a moral claim over people's lives. And people have been or set themselves up to be sort of people that try to find violations of the Bible, contradictions of the Bible in the Bible, because they, they think if they can find a contradiction, then, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm delivered. I don't have to believe what it says. It's kind of like W.C. Fields at the end of his life. At the end of his life as he was dying, he, his friends, family saw him reading his Bible. And that shocked them because he was not known for being a very godly person. And so he was asked, well why are you at the end of your life reading the Bible when your whole life has been spent rejecting the God of the Bible? And he basically said, I'm looking for loopholes. I'm looking for problems in the Bible because I know if I can find at least one, then I'm not morally accountable to this God that I'm supposed to meet after I die. And so you have to understand this when people are always trying to find these contradictions, there's really something going on at the motive level or the lost man or woman or mind really does not want to submit to the authority of God. And so they're always looking for contradictions. The problem is the contradictions when you do a little investigative work are easily answered. If you want a good book on this, uh, the late Gleason Archer wrote a book called Bible Difficulties. Explaining all of these alleged contradictions. The late Norman Geisler wrote several books like this, alleged contradictions of the Bible, and so forth. That's the reason I bring these things to your attention. Because if I don't do it as a pastor teacher, someone on cable television or wherever is going to point these out, and you're going to be sort of caught flat-footed. My goal as a teacher is to equip you. That is my job. You go down to verse 29 and there's a wedding gift as now Rachel is given to Jacob. You see that there in verse 29 of Genesis 29 which says Laban also gave his maid Bilha to his daughter Rachel as her maid. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of this particular verse says verse 29 discloses the wedding gift. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, meaning terror. How would you like that for a name? <laughs> Here's her wedding gift. Her name happens to be Terror. Well, gee, wise. Thanks, thanks for that. His handmaid to be her handmaid. Now notice what Fruchtenbaum says here. Again, this is keeping with the Newsy tablets. What are the Nuzi tablets? The Nuzi tablets are clay tablets that were discovered near Kirkuk, Iraq in the 1920s. They date back to the mid-2nd millennium BC when Nuzi was part of the Haranian Empire. They contain family archives and legal documents that shed light on the everyday life and custom of those in Haran and their neighbors in Mesopotamia. Some of these customs, such as the tablets of sistership, may have parallels with the biblical patriarchs who lived in the same region several hundred years earlier. In other words, what is happening here with the giving of the handmaid in a wedding is normal in that time period, as demonstrated by the Newsy tablets. When, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham says to the Lord, well, thank you for these promises. I guess, um, since my wife is childless, I guess the heir of these promises is going to be Eliezer of Damascus in my household. Why would Abraham say something like that? In fact, his name at that time wasn't even Abraham yet, it was Abram. Well, that's consistent with the Newsy tablets. The Newsy tablets indicate that if you are childless, if your wife is childless, then the inheritor of the rights of the household go to your number one servant in your household. I bring this up because a lot of people think the Bible is just a bunch of fiction. It's fictitious. It just contains a bunch of stories. But when you actually study the Bible and the things that are happening in the Bible in light of the archaeology and the culture of the day, such as the Nuzi tablets, you'll find that Abraham and what he said there was totally consistent with the Nuzi tablets. The giving of the handmaid in a wedding ceremony is totally consistent with the Nuzi tablets. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a bunch of fiction. You're not reading tall tales. You're not reading veggie tales. You're not reading Jack and the Beanstalk. And the secularist will say, well, we're going to do the real history over here in the classroom. I have the Ph.D. in history. And you guys go over to the church and do the religious thing. So they've driven a wedge in between the secular and the sacred, as if real history somehow is the domain of the unsaved. And what you read in the Bible is not historical at all. And I'm bringing these things up to show you how nonsensical that is. That's the propaganda line, but it's not what is true. You're reading a book that fits identically not just with the book of Genesis, but every single book of the Bible with the known facts of history that we have. So keep your eye here on uh, Billa, because Genesis 30, verses 6 through 8, she is going to be the mother of two of the tribes of Israel, Dan and Naphtali, And then back in, what was it, verse 24, we ran into, with the first wedding, someone named Zilpah. Keep your eye on her, because she is going to be the mother of two of the tribes of Israel, Gad and Asher. Genesis chapter 30, verses 11 through 13. Because what we're going to start to get by the time we get to the end of this chapter, if we ever get to the end of this chapter before the rapture, is we're going to get a description of where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. And you're going to see exactly where they came from. The 12 tribes of Israel are a big deal going all the way through the Bible right into the book of Revelation, where God is going to evangelize the whole world after the rapture through the 12 tribes. In fact, in the eternal state, the last two chapters of the Bible, there is a giant city made out like a cube that's going to descend to the new heavens and the new earth, from the heavens to the new earth. And this city is going to be laid out like a cube. And there's going to be three gates on each side of the city. And each of the gates is named after the 12 tribes. So you read that and you say, well, Where do these 12 tribes come from? That's why you have to pay attention to the book of Genesis because it gives you an explanation on that and information on that. You cannot understand the rest of the Bible without the book of Genesis. In fact, I'm of the belief that every major doctrine that you believe as a Christian some way, somehow has its roots in the book of Genesis. Genesis. That's why Satan has worked so hard to convince people that the book of Genesis is not real. Because Satan himself understands that if you can discredit the book of Genesis, all of Christianity collapses because it all comes from Genesis, ultimately. Psalm 11 and verse 3, it says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so every single day of your life, you're watching TV, you're listening to those in the public school system, you're even listening, sadly, to liberal Christians, and they're telling you, well, you cannot believe that God created the world in six days. Oh, really? Were you there to see it? What do you believe? Well, I believe from the goo to you by way of the zoo, over billions of years, well I'm sorry, I have to, it takes more faith for me to believe that than it does what the Bible says. But what you'll see is attack after attack after attack after attack on Genesis because the devil is smart enough to understand that if you destroy the book of Genesis, you destroy Christianity. So you want to understand the rest of the Bible, read the book of Genesis. You want to understand the 12 tribes, which are very prominent in the end times, very prominent in the New Jerusalem. In fact, you won't even be able to go in and out of the gate of the city without seeing the name of each tribe on each gate. And you want to know where do these tribes come from? You have to pay attention to, like all other doctrines, the book of Genesis. And so we move uh, from there into the consummation of the marriage. All right, this is what we've been waiting for. At least this is what Jacob has been waiting for, right? Look at that, Genesis 29 and verse 30. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. Sometimes the best things in life are worth waiting for. He's waited seven years for this. And his desire here is fulfilled with the woman he loves. The woman of his dreams. We are living in a culture which does not understand delayed gratification. Because we get everything instantly. I drive through a drive through and they better get my order right and they better get it done quick or I'm bent out of shape because I'm an American. We're very impatient. I mean, we don't even have to, with microwave ovens, we don't even have to wait for things to heat up anymore. Just press it, heat it up, it's ready to go. And so we're living in this culture where we expect things that are good to happen right away. And if they don't happen right away, we somehow think we're outside of the will of God. And I'm here to tell you that God doesn't always work according to American schedules. Have you noticed that? Sometimes he says you're going to have to go through some delayed gratification. Sometimes you're going to have to wait... Before God drops that blessing into your life, whatever that blessing is, it could be marriage, it could be a career that you want, it could be perhaps an income that you were hoping for. And you pray and pray and pray and nothing seems to happen and we get frustrated because we're putting God on our time schedule. God, you're not working according to my time schedule. And God says, well, whoever gave you the idea that I worked according to your time schedule. I work according to my time schedule. And so we have to learn the art and the science of delayed gratification. I remember my cousin very clearly as he was rearing his children in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. Watching him sort of interact with them. Watching them kind of melt down over certain things that they weren't getting immediately whether it be toys or, or whatever, and he would say something like this to his kids one at a time. He said, delayed gratification, can you hack it? That's what he would say to his kids. Delayed gratification, can you handle it? And the kid would kind of, you know, straighten up. Yeah, yeah. That's what God is saying to a lot of us. Delayed gratification, good things are coming. But as the Bible says, wait on the Lord. End of Isaiah chapter 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up as equals. How does the rest go? They will run and not feel faint. The Eric, Eric Little verse, right? Chariots of fire. And that might be a very poor paraphrase I just did. But you know where it is. It's the end of Isaiah 40. Waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord for a job, waiting on the Lord for a purchase, waiting on the Lord for a spouse. Maybe you're married and you're hoping for a child. Maybe you're hoping for a better job. Maybe you feel like what they pay me at my job just isn't what I'm worth. And the Lord says, wait, I hear your petition. I haven't said no to it. But what I want you to do is learn the art of patience. Isn't that one of the fruit of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, (laughs) patience. It's just hard for me to even say. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things are There is no law. How can God teach us patience if he doesn't put us through the process of delayed gratification? I mean, if you just get everything you want. There's a brand of theology, by the way, that says that. It's called name it and claim it. Otherwise known as blab it and grab it. (laughs) It basically says you're a child of a king and you can command things into existence. You want a new car? Command it into existence. Name it and claim it. Well... To be honest with you, there's a lot of things that I've named and claimed in my life, and I thank God I never got them because they probably would have ruined my life completely because I wasn't in a state of maturity where I could handle that blessing. God knows a lot better than we do in this area. So here is Jacob now going back to work and serving Laban for an additional seven years. For Rachel. It says, verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel, second part of verse 30, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. His heart was on Rachel, not Leah. Not saying Leah was a terrible person. What it's saying is his heart was on Rachel. And indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah and he served with Laban for another seven years. This is how we know that Jacob loved Rachel because he was willing to serve for her for 14 years total. That was the bridal price. In fact, do you remember the first seven years? Go back to verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed but a few days because of his love for her. The nature of love. The love chapter. Greatest, greatest chapter you can read on the Bible in terms of what is love. As you probably know, there's four different words for love in Koine Greek. There's Eros, romantic love, Leo, which is brotherly love. You have a love called uh, Storgas, which is family love. But then there's Agape. Not sloppy Agape, Agape. Agape is the highest form of love that you can have. John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Which Greek word is used there? It's it's agape. It's a love that will put the needs of someone else first before one's own needs. Eros doesn't necessarily do that. Storgas doesn't necessarily do that. Phileo doesn't necessarily do that, but agape does it. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, the love chapter, says love is patient. Wow. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant the chapter goes on it says love is not easily provoked love does not keep a record of wrongs and i'm really happy that we have a lot of young people coming into Sugarland Bible Church just thrills me and nobody needs to hear this more than someone of marriageable age young because the nice young man who looks nice on the outside will throw the word love at you constantly but then you say to yourself, does he really have agape love for me? Is he patient? Is he kind? Is he always rude? Is he always demanding? Is he always impatient? He might have lust for you, but not love. Lust and love are very different. Lust can't wait to get. True love, by contrast, can't wait to give. Love is a, is a giver it's not a taker and many many people have been deceived i believe into marrying the wrong person because they were never really taught what love is everybody in american society throws this word love around constantly if you're old enough you remember the love boat right and if you if you remember that don't say anything cuz you'll date yourself I watched the Love Boat series. I know what love is all about. No, we don't. We don't have the foggiest idea what it's about. The Greeks had four different words. It's obvious to me that Jacob loved Rachel because he was willing to put himself last in this equation and serve God, uh, serve Laban rather, legally to get her hand For 14 years total. I mean, is the man that has proposed to you willing to do that? I mean, would he, would he serve seven years and to him it would be like uh, a fleeting moment because of his love for you? Most of us wouldn't last seven weeks. Seven months, seven hours. Because we're in a society that is demanding gratification now. And yet, what kind of relationship is that at the end of the day? It's a relationship that's built on the sand. Not on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. It it is very troubling to look at the divorce statistics. And I'm not here to throw a heavy on anybody. I'm just making an observation it is very troubling to look at the divorce statistics in the Christian world and discover that the divorce statistics in the Christian world are just as bad and in some cases worse than the unsaved world. And I think what's happening to a lot of us is we're rushing into things where God is trying to teach us things such as the true nature of love, delayed gratification and we wonder why 25 years pass, 30 years pass, 15 years pass, 10 years pass and our relationship is not really capable of sustaining the storms that it goes through because things don't get any easier when you get married, things become more difficult. Because now not, you don't just have one sin nature to deal with, you got two. And wait till the kids come. Now you got more sin natures. Uh, I'm reminded of the young woman that would say, "You know pastor, I wish you would stop talking about the soon return of Jesus." And I say, why? Well I want to get married. I want to get married and have children. And then six months into the marriage, she says, what were you saying about the soon return of Jesus? Can you talk a little more more about this? Marriage is difficult going all the way back to Genesis 3. God says this is the ramifications of the fall. Everything is different. Marriage is hard. Making a living is hard. And how important it is to wait on the Lord... And allow the Lord to bring the right person into your life at the right time. And to understand the Lord's process in it by understanding what agape really is. And so Jacob is just a beautiful expression here of what true love is. It is very interesting also to notice that Jacob was willing to serve 14 years for Rachel's hand. How do you determine the value of something? You determine the value of something based on the price paid. The higher the price that the purchaser is willing to pay, the higher the value of whatever it is the purchaser desires to have higher price, higher value. Supply, demand, I guess we could say, simple economics. I mean, did it's the Bible says Jacob loved Rachel, but did he really love her? Sure he loved her. Look at the price he was willing to pay. Not 7 years, but 14 years. And by analogy, we might ask this question, and that's why I entitled this uh, sermon God values us. What is the price that God was willing to pay to redeem us to himself? Was there a higher price that could be paid? The answer is no. God the Father was willing to send forth his most valuable and his most prized possession into our world to lead a very difficult life and experience a very difficult death because he loves you that much. The book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, and and you know the verse very well, But God, anybody know the next part of that verse? Demonstrates, demonstrates, demonstrates. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, in other words, rebellious against God. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How valuable are you to God? You are so valuable to God, we are so valuable to God, that God was willing to pay the highest price that could be paid, the person of Jesus, and what he experienced. I mean, could he have upped the ante and paid more? No, he couldn't have. He gave his most valuable possession. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But whosoever believes in Him may not perish or shall not perish, but have eternal life. The, the powerful idea of the love of God for people. God loves people. People can be a nuisance to us. People can be an annoyance to us. People, we kind of look at them when we get on the wrong side of someone. Look at people as people that need to be shut up. Being honest here. People that need to be refuted. People that need to be contradicted. People to to be avoided. But that's not how God looks at people. God looks at people as if they are of an immeasurable value. They are an immeasurable worth. Well, how do you know, Pastor? Because of the price, simple economics. The price that he was willing to pay. Do you realize that right now as I'm speaking, the young people of the United States of America are going through an epidemic of suicide? The things that the youth are experiencing today far exceeds anything I had to experience. Where people are threatening suicide, uh, cutting themselves. We've even had in our, our flock people that we thought we were, that were walking with the Lord, that as a very young person, seemingly with their whole life in front of them, start making decisions that are of the suicidal nature and are no longer with us? Why is this going on? I, I think, and I don't claim to have the answers to everything, but I think it has something to do with the fact that the youth of the United States, they don't really see who they are in Jesus. They don't really see their value. They, they think that their life doesn't really count They're here for no reason. Well, why shouldn't they think that way? We've taught them Darwinism for since 1859, I guess it is, that they're an accident, biological accident. So if you teach someone over and over again dogmatically in the name of science, which the King James Version, 1 Timothy 6 verse 20, warns us against beliefs that are so-called science, This isn't science, this is someone's philosophy in the name of science. A lot of things being said in the name of science that have nothing to do with it. They're taught a philosophy of life called humanism that they are accidents. Well, why if you're taught that as a dogmatic fact and Jesus and the Bible and his perspective is pushed out of public life, pushed out of the public schools, then of course the, the suicides would be up amongst the youth. And how important it is to get the message. I don't know how we're going to do it other than one-on-one evangelism. We try to do what we can do here through Internet, social media. Uh, but some way, somehow, we've got to get, get the message to these kids that they're loved. Somebody loves you. When was the last first time a a young person in the United States heard that? Somebody loves you. Jesus loves you. Yeah, well, how do I know he loves me? Look at the price. Look at the price that was paid so you could enter into a relationship With him. I'm of the perspective that if you were the only person on planet Earth, you're the only human being, Jesus still would have died on the cross. Because that's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves people. And this is how we need to look at people, see people through that. Through that lens, not as as an irritant, but as a soul for whom Christ died. There's some things that rise up in me that I'm not very proud of. Particularly when I see my country being trashed by homosexuals, transgender, evolutionists, People that are involved in all kinds of perversion. It's very easy for me to drift into Lord socket to them, forgetting that they're not the enemy. The devil's the enemy. They're people. They're people who, that the Lord loves for whom Christ died. Yeah, but they're so rude and obnoxious. Oh, you mean like you were before you got saved? Like that, you mean? I mean, what exactly did Jesus say as he was dying on the cross? He didn't say, I'm going to get you all when I come back a second time. (laughs) He said, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. They don't even know what they're doing. And here, here's the Christian church, sadly, going to war against people. I'm all in favor of morality, America, patriotism, protecting the country, all of that stuff I'm on board with. But let's be careful about our tone. Let's not give people the impression that they're not loved by God, because they are. What does the Bible say? Ephesians 4, verse 15. Speak the truth in love. I'm pretty good at speaking the truth. I could do that. But the true disciple of Jesus Christ can do it in love, can stand for something without alienating the people we're speaking to. Because you can, here's the deal you can win an argument and lose the soul. You can win an argument and lose people. And once we get into that mindset, we're no longer fulfilling the mission that God gave us. Well, gee, Pastor, do you have a good book that we can read on this? I sure do. It's called The Book of Jonah. It's what the whole book is about. In fact, in Hebrew, uh, the word Jonah means silly. Did you know that? It's a, it's a man acting silly because he had lost sight of his mission, which was dispensing the grace of God. And he doesn't do that very well. He doesn't do that in chapter 1. He doesn't do it in chapter 2. He doesn't, he doesn't do it in chapter 3. And he doesn't do it in chapter 4. In fact, in chapter 4, you know how the book ends? With him sort of lining himself up looking at Nineveh hoping for a firework show. And then his plant over him fades and he's scorched by the sun. And he's worried about (laughs) the sun beating down on him. Not the Ninevites who didn't know their right hand from their left. Silly. Ridiculous. That's what his name means. And yet, are we kind of like Jonah sometimes? Very easy to lose sight of the fact that people are valuable to God. And God loves people. Jacob loved Rachel. And that's obvious by the fact that he served Laban. Not for seven years, but for 14 years. God loves you because of the price that was paid. Yeah, but where do these 12 tribes of Israel come from? Well, you have to come back next week for that. But the fact that God loves you, I can't think of a better segue into the Gospel. The Bible really is a love letter written to you because He loves you that much. Jesus paid a price for you that could not be paid Otherwise. And he simply asks us to trust in what he has done for us 2,000 years ago. That makes us right with God. That's the gospel. It's simple and it's easy because Jesus did all the work. And I hope many, many people within the sound of my voice will respond to God, the God of love, Because the book of Romans chapter 2 says it's His kindness that leads us into repentance. People need to understand they're valued. They need to understand they're loved. And as the Spirit convicts men and women of this, within the sound of my voice, our hope and prayer is that many will be exercising faith and trusting in Jesus for salvation If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk, shall we pray. Father, we're grateful for this ancient historical account of the love of a man for a woman. True biblical love because of the price he was willing to pay and how this is sort of an analogy, if you will, concerning the love of the Son of God For lost humanity. We thank you for that. Help us to walk these things out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.